Welcome to the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association, abridged from the book Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Chapter 5, The Livermore Affair. We first heard about the Livermore Affair in Chapter 3. This was the watershed moment that cemented ALPA as a leader in aviation safety for pilots and passengers alike. In 1937, a young widow by the name of Lorna Livermore helped ALPA shed light on the practice of pilot pushing for the very first time. Mrs. Livermore sued Northwest Airlines, alleging that pilot pushing is what sent her husband, Joe Livermore, and his co-pilot, Art Hade, into the midst of an 80-mile-an-hour winter gale on the night of December 18, 1936. En route from St. Paul, Minnesota, to Spokane, Washington, in a Northwest Airlines Lockheed 10, and carrying cargo consisting solely of Christmas mail, the pilots made their last radio contact at 3 a.m., reporting over what they thought might be Elk River, Idaho. They were off course, overdue, and nowhere near their destination. From Seattle, the western terminus of Northwest's northern transcontinental route, operations manager Bob Mensing told reporters the next morning that he felt confident the plane had been forced down near Elk River and that the pilots had been unable to reach a telephone. The reporters in Seattle were particularly interested in the overdue plane because it was the second such mysterious airliner disappearance in a week. A Western Air Express plane, with three crew members and four passengers, went missing somewhere along the Nevada-Utah border. It was presumed that there were survivors because two radio stations had heard weak distress calls claiming to be from the down plane. It was front-page drama, the possibility that somewhere there were injured people desperately trying to summon help. In a race against time, over 8,000 searchers scoured the wild terrain, trying to find the Western Air Express plane before a predicted killer blizzard hit the area. After 24 hours, the faint radio signals, which had stirred hope, were heard no more. Later, Western Air Express officials surmised that the distress messages were probably a hoax, some amateur radio operator's idea of a bad joke. But the reporters surrounding Bob Mensing for news of his overdue plane didn't know that yet. They spent the day of December 19th camped outside his Seattle office, hoping to get a story that would scoop the reporters covering the Western Air Express plane search several hundred miles away in Salt Lake City. Spokesmen for the airline would later announce that they had given up hope days ago of finding any of their people alive. A crushing blizzard had descended on the probable crash site in northern Nevada, convincing them that there was no longer any use in holding out the possibility of rescuing survivors. But there was still hope for the Northwest plane and its two pilots. Rescuers had narrowed their search to a series of unnamed ridges along the Wyoming-Idaho border. A ranger in Gallatin National Forest reported seeing the plane at 4 in the morning on December 19th an hour after its last radio transmission. On December 21st, a pilot spotted wreckage near Kellogg, Idaho. He thought there might have been survivors, 
but before ground parties could work their way up to the nearly inaccessible site, another blizzard hit. There was nothing to do but wait. On December 26th, a fur trapper, who had volunteered to snowshoe his way up to the wreckage, reported back that there were no survivors. Both Livermore and Hayde were dead. When reporters asked Bob Mensing how co-pilot Hayde's young widow was taking it, he said she simply asked that her husband's body be sent home to Seattle. But Mensing said nothing about Lorna Livermore, Joe's widow. And for good reason. An angry Lorna Livermore had already sent a notarized statement to the Department of Commerce, which was the principal federal agency regulating aviation in those days, all but accusing Bob Mensing of murdering her husband. Any list of airlines with the worst pilot management relations records from those days would show Northwest Airlines somewhere near the top. At other airlines, bad blood between pilots and supervisory personnel would ebb and flow. But at Northwest, it stayed pretty much at flood stage. So it came as no surprise that something like the Livermore case happened at Northwest. Joe Livermore lived in Spokane with his wife Lorna. He flew a regular section between Spokane and St. Paul, with stops in places like Missoula and Billings. He flew the twin-engine Lockheed 10, a low-wing, all-metal airplane called the Electra, that carried 10 passengers. The Lockheed 10 could operate under instrument flight rules, but the state of electronic airways was still so rudimentary over Northwest's routes that many pilots still preferred to fly visually. They'd rely on the post office's old lighted airways, with their reassuring beacons winking every few miles. Joe Livermore was one of those pilots, and he was a classic case of an older pilot caught in the transitionary bind between what pilots called contact, or visual flying, and instrument, or blind flying. In the late 1920s, when the first practical passenger aircraft, such as the Ford and Fokker Trimotor, began to appear in regular airline service, the instrument panels already had a modern look. They usually sported a complete array of instruments, including even the then-revolutionary gyro-driven artificial horizon so a pilot could easily keep his plane right side up when he inadvertently ventured into the clouds. The problem was navigation. Effective IFR operations were still impossible because the electronic airways were not yet complete. Even as late as the 1930s, after low-frequency ranges began dotting the nation's airways and suitable in-flight radios were available, the all-weather concept could still be hindered by elements such as static. The most troubling aspect of early IFR flight was the approach. It was one thing to sit up high, clear of surrounding terrain, and take a chance that the radio signals being used to navigate or beam were on course. But when it came to dipping down into the soup, trying to fly the beam into the field, that was something else. A pilot had to be absolutely certain that he passed directly over the radio facility during the approach, and the only way he could determine that was with his ears, something pilots called the cone of silence. Directly over the station, there was an electronic knoll that could be either very small or very large, depending on your altitude and atmospheric conditions. 
Static could have a number of effects on a low-frequency radio range, but from the point of view of early airline pilots, the worst thing it did was to interfere with reception to the point where they could not determine the cone of silence. In theory, the low-frequency radio ranges worked well enough that airline executives and government officials declared that the age of all-weather flying had arrived. Working pilots knew it wasn't true. They knew from first-hand experience how vulnerable to such factors as atmospherics and poor maintenance the early IFR system was. They knew the terrors of wandering ranges and all the other problems they encountered on an everyday basis. Most pilots developed their own tricks to avoid betting their lives on their ears. Some only grudgingly endured the new instrument training and rarely flew blind. They would take off and submit fraudulent position reports, saying they were at 9,000 instruments when actually they were dodging sagebrush, flying visually underneath, just like they used to in the old days. Joe Livermore was such a pilot. On the night of December 13, 1936, he did something that got him in serious trouble with Bob Mensing, his immediate supervisor. Livermore abandoned the electronic airway early that night because of static and thunderstorms. Maybe he was right in doing so, and the chances are good that Bob Mensing wouldn't have made a fuss had Livermore not had a long history of doing such things. Livermore arrived safely to Missoula, but it was a turbulent trip at low altitude, and the passengers were airsick and scared. The night was turning ugly, with lots of lightning visible on the horizon so he did what he thought was the responsible thing under the circumstances. He sent his passengers on to their destination via railroad train and checked himself into a hotel to get some sleep and wait out the weather. Bob Mensing was furious with Livermore for two reasons. First, because he allowed his passengers to finish their journey on a train, thus depriving Northwest of much-needed revenue. And second, because he had gotten off course to fly visually, again. Mensing had previously warned Livermore about flying into low turbulence because of the upsetting effect it had on passengers. Northwest was trying to get all of its pilots to fly on instruments up high where passengers could have a smooth ride, and company policy was to only fly visually if there was no other choice. Mensing was convinced that Livermore had canceled instruments prematurely. Or maybe Mensing was just angry because Livermore had gone into town, casually leaving word at the field to call when the weather got better, instead of staying by the plane to assess the weather for himself. So Bob Mensing exercised his managerial prerogative by chewing out Joe Livermore over the telephone, and an ultimatum was laid at the pilot's feet. Fly or resign. With that, Livermore checked out of his hotel room, returned to the field, and took off into what ground personnel later described as bad weather. He successfully made it home to Spokane for the last time. Lorna Livermore's notarized deposition stated that Joe was highly upset by the dressing down Mensing had given him over the phone in Missoula. She recalled he came home very late, tired, worried, and not wanting to talk about it. Finally, he told her that he had been given hell by Bob Mensing and that it came down to a choice, fly in any weather or lose his job. 
Five days later, Livermore was airborne once more on his regular run. The weather was bad again, a solid IFR night, with a winter storm slamming across the northern Great Plains at winds clocked at up to 80 miles per hour. Co-pilot Art Hayde might well have been better qualified to fly the gauges than Livermore, since his recent Army service had taught him how to use the most up-to-date IFR techniques. It is apparent that Joe Livermore, on the night of December 18, 1936, should probably have canceled his flight. But he was so depressed, under pressure, and fearful of losing his job that he didn't. He and Art Hayde would pay with their lives for that error in judgment. If it were not for Dave Bankey making the Livermore pilot-pushing case, nobody would care about it today. Except perhaps the heirs of Joe Livermore and Art Hayde. But the resulting Livermore affair came at a crucial point in American aviation history. Congress was in the process of writing a sweeping new law that would ultimately be called the Civil Aeronautics Act of 1938. The Livermore Affair became the dramatic centerpiece of Banky's campaign to protect pilots from the arbitrary dictates of bureaucracy, both within the government and corporate ranks, at least when safety was at stake. We'll be back next episode with the conclusion of Chapter 5, Flying the Line. We'll hear about how ALPA founder Captain Dave Banky joined Lorna Livermore and other airline pilots to advocate for placing safety above all in commercial aviation. Thank you for listening. This has been Chapter 5 of Flying the Line by George E. Hopkins. Copyright 1982. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast. To listen and subscribe to more in this series, please check us out online at alpa.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or other podcast platforms. Until next time, this is the Flying the Line podcast, a look into the past of the Airline Pilots Association. Production copyright ALPA 2019. All rights reserved.